0: Your brother's doing a podcast. Do you want to join in? I am. All right. Would you like to say, welcome to climate, Papa? No, it's dumb. Yeah, I agree. I don't know. That's a silly name. Welcome Welcome to to climate, (laughs) climate (laughs) Papa. You're going to talk to Jason about climate change, I guess? Welcome to Climate Papa, a show about the intersection of climate change, technology, and parenthood. I'm Ben Eilson. I'm based in Seattle, and I invest in product-led climate companies. And I'm a papa to two kids, a five-year-old girl and a two-year-old boy. And today, I'm here with Jessen, and I'll let her introduce herself.
1: Hi there. My name is Jessen Farrell, and I am a recovering politician, a transit advocate, and currently the director of the Office of Sustainability for the City of Seattle. And I have a 15-year-old daughter and an almost 13-year-old son and an almost
0: 9-year-old son. And what are the middle years like? What's I got, definitely the call
1: years? these like the running race years. The scheduling is very intense. I'm living four people's lives right
0: now. Is it just like all the activities? It's all, all the things? activities. It's school. It's
1: social lives. Like I have a kid who doesn't drive yet but likes to do things all over the city. And so while she's great at taking transit, I'm definitely doing a lot of driving so that she can hang out with her friends, which is a good problem to have.
0: Give us a little history of your relationship to Seattle and when you got here and started family here.
1: Yeah. So it all started in my grandmother's kitchen in Chicago. It was the height of the Vietnam War. My parents were trying to figure out how to live as far away from Chicago and as close to Canada as possible. And so they chose Bellingham, Washington Oh wow! and eventually made their way to Seattle where I grew up.
0: Yeah, do you mean if they needed to, they could pop into Canada?
1: Head into Canada if they needed to. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so you grew up here and been here most of your life? Been here
1: most of my life. I went to law school in Boston, lived in The Hague for a period of time. Um, But yep, by and large, I have lived in Seattle.
0: Tell me a little bit about how having kids and thinking about climate change intersect for you.
1: I've always been interested in environmental activism, and I chose to work in environmental activism long before I had kids. I like to sometimes say I'm literally a saving the whales kind of environmentalist. And every once in a while, the ferry stops for a pod of orcas, and it's like the coolest thing ever. You know, to that kind of question around how does parenting and climate change intersect, it's both with this hope that my kids get to have this place in the way that I've gotten to enjoy it, whether it's orcas or hiking or being able to grow raspberries in our front yard, and also this really deep-weighted knowledge that things are changing really rapidly and that we're running out of time, and it's really sad.
0: And so through the waves of environmentalism, how has that connected? Has that always connected career-wise and been like a fundamental motivator for you,
1: Yeah, I started out as an AmeriCorps volunteer working at Yesler Terrace in Seattle, which was public housing, and then went to law school because I wanted to get into environmental activism and felt like being a lawyer created a lot of different avenues to do that, and Mm -hmm. came back to Seattle and chose to work on transportation and transit because it just cuts across so many different issues, economic, land use, environmental, quality of life, equity. So I threw myself into transit advocacy. And one of my, still one of my favorite wins in my career is beating the highway and mall developers on their own turf in the city of Bellevue when we got that city council in 2007 to decide that it wanted light rail as its preferred alternative over I-90. And at that time, highways versus light rail was a very big cultural fight at that time it was still seen as a government boondoggle and not something that people around here in this less dense area would ever embrace but as we know that's not true people like trains
0: what about transit like really hit for you was it like something personally or was it just that you saw the systemic layer it played like the
1: basic thing for me is i love cities and cities have different personalities they're like people and What makes a great city to me is the things that I think a lot of people love about some of the great cities in the world. They're vibrant. They're busy. They have great walkable, mixed-use places. And growing up here in a time when there was just like really massive and rapid suburbanization from 1980 up through even now, but the area east tucked in between Seattle and the mountains literally suburbanized during my childhood. Yeah. And this idea that you can make cities more dense, make cities great places for everybody to live as a way of saving wild places is something that was just really resonant. And one of the ingredients of a great city is transit, is a great transit system.
0: Interesting. So you realized that it both made for a more desirable city for you to live in and people to want to live in and enjoy in the great cities that most of us think about have that density and all have that vibrancy to them, Yeah. coupled with, okay, wait, this actually does help the whales (laughs) and is a path to make an environmental impact. Okay. So it brings us to, you love cities, you're grown and raised and your kids are raised in Seattle. You love transit. And so what do you do?
1: What do I do? I have a dream job. I get to direct the city of Seattle's Office of Sustainability and Environment.
0: How long has that office been around and how do we think about that office in context with climate change?
1: Yeah, our office was established circa 2005. And it really is almost like an archaeology of the environmental movement from that era to the present. Yeah, And so you really so it was established with what we might refer to as like white mainstream environmental priorities of that era trees, clean buildings, carbon reduction. And over time, there was a layering over, particularly during the Obama era, of beginning to look more closely at environmental justice and how systems of race and class really impact who bears environmental burdens. And in Seattle, like in most places, it is people of color and lower income people. And so a lot of our work shifted to focus more on the holistic approach of environmental justice. And then towards the end of the last decade, a focus on climate change and climate justice and a Green New Deal. And to me, that's about centering, again, frontline communities, Black, Indigenous, people of color, but also bringing in to environmental work a focus on economic prosperity. And to me, that's what's really exciting about the Green New Deal, as I was referring earlier to how the opposition often says, your costs will go up or you'll lose jobs. And what's cool about the Green New Deal is it hits that frame right on its head, which is to say, by investing in climate, we're actually going to create a new economy that has potentially more access to wealth for more people.
0: The it ties it all together. These threads of climate justice, helping on climate change, and economic prosperity, yep. which are all like, these feel like pretty fundamental things. It's totally, like, yeah. literally our health, our societal equality, Mm -hmm. and our economic prosperity. Yeah,
1: All of these are the big things. And like one of the things that we're really thinking about in our office then is how do you measure those things? So traditionally, agencies were good at measuring things like air quality, and we're also pretty good at measuring health outcomes. We know that there are neighborhoods like South Park in Seattle and Laurelhurst that have life expectancy differences of over a decade wow. and that's because of health impacts and health outcomes in these two neighborhoods. What we're not as good at thinking about is wealth outcomes mm-hmm. and so how we are investing in you know, economic supports or innovations and how those actually impact wealth inequality.
0: One thing, just to connect the dots, because I think most people heard about the Green New Deal in the context of the federal proposal by progressive Democrats, is it the same thing, exact thing we're talking about? Is it a version of that kind of has made it down to the city level? We mean, Or is it the thematic ideas behind it that we've now taken and run with as a city?
1: I think it's more that piece around the thematic elements of a Green New Deal, which include a just transition from fossil fuels. So, not just transitioning from fossil fuels, but making sure that we're not leaving workers behind. You know, I think particularly in this state, we can just look to what happened with the logging industry and it collapsed in the early 90s. Those communities were devastated and are still struggling 30 years later because we didn't think about what is going to happen. Yes, let's protect the spotted owl, let's protect mm. salmon, but what happens to the people who are Got doing it. those jobs? And you literally had an industry collapse with workers who lost you know, an entire identity, industry, yeah. an entire livelihood, generations of people who had done this. And so when I, I use the phrase just transition from fossil fuels really deliberately because it really is about how do we do this in a way that creates economic prosperity broadly And particularly for those workers that are doing things like natural gas hookups. We are wanting to electrify in Seattle, but what are we going to be doing to make sure that those workers have access to something that is meaningful and dignified and well-paying? It's really exciting. Again, I think going back to the Green New Deal, because it really deliberately connects that notion of building things and yes. green transition. And it's really exciting.
0: Yeah, there's like a, a lot of opportunity ahead. There. Yep. So I want to go deep into what we're doing in Seattle, what we're trying to do in Seattle. What do we think is the role of cities versus counties versus the utilities versus the state versus the federal government? If you're a city dweller in Seattle or in Portland or in San Francisco, or maybe not on the West Coast, what well, what our cities can do and should be doing in the scope of responsibility and opportunity?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Big picture, I would say that we're in an all hands on deck moment. So it means all levels of government, all industry, all individuals. No one gets to sit this out as we're rushing to transition our whole way of living, right? So that we have a, a world that we can give to our kids where they get to pick raspberries in their front yard, the way my kids... Did read, this morning? Breathe air right? most days of the yeah, year. Yeah, breathe that is clean air. That's right. But cities, in particular, are really important. There now is federal dollars that have been enacted. There's also state funding that's been enacted, and it really is the cities are really the implementers, and and the innovators and the laboratory for how we do this and how we experiment with scaling. So while cities are important, you really do need those other levels of government and the private sector and philanthropic and civic also coming together because it's a really big project in front of us.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I guess there's both the layer of the levels of government, which are these entities that we decide to collaborate through. And then there's just the more physical reality, which is I think it's 70 or 80 percent of global emissions come from cities not because cities are particularly high emitting, they're actually much lower emitting per capita, but because that's where people are living. That's where people are. So that's where people are, that's where food is consumed, that's where transit is happening. Uh, There's both kind of the government relationship to cities, but it's also the fact that that's the environment with which we need to do the most work from kind of a consumer perspective as well, and commercial perspective and all these things.
1: Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Cities are, you mentioned that piece around the, carbon emissions per capita being lower for residents of cities. I think New
0: York, at least in the US, I think a city dweller in New York has the lowest per capita, you know, average emissions because New York's so dense. Their
1: transportation emissions are literally lower, right? Like that's the thing. And so cities are just great laboratories and implementers of how we live in a lower carbon way.
0: Okay. So with that context, what do do we get to do or what are our big goals, you know, and the big things that you're trying to pull off?
1: Yeah, so our work really falls into three big buckets. We are working on a just transition from fossil fuels. So that means we are decarbonizing all of our buildings and decarbonizing transportation. It means we are looking at place-based resiliency because climate change is already happening. We had the Duwamish River flood, the neighborhood of South
0: Park. A heat wave here. Uh, we had a heat wave, okay.
1: right? There are lots of impacts that are already happening. And so how are we building neighborhoods that are resilient to climate change? And then the third one is this piece around sharing the economic benefits of this transition, both in terms of investing, in terms of the work that's created, who has access to the education that allows you to do that work. And so all of my office's work kind of fits into those three
0: areas. Let's first jump into the decarbonization one first. And it's also where you and I have spent the most time yes. talking. Yep. What does decarbonization mean? When we talk about decarbonized transport. We're we talking about decarbonized buildings. What does that mean? People people are looking at, they're, in, they're sitting inside their house or inside a car they're like, well, how do I take the carbon out of this thing?
1: Yeah. Okay. So in transportation, it means two things. Either electrifying your vehicle trips or getting around without a vehicle, like yeah. leaving your car at home. We need to be planning for and implementing both strategies. And the thing I love about leaving your car at home is we can already start to implement that. You know, maybe not as comprehensively as we want to. And I encourage everyone to spend some time leaving your car at home because you can reduce emissions right now that way. And on the other hand, also electrifying the trips that you do take. So that means... Figuring out how to scale up access to electrification and charging infrastructure, not just in our homes, but how are we allocating sidewalk space for that? We have a lot of things that we want to do with our sidewalks. We want people to be able to walk. We want to have street trees, street cafes, bicycle parking. Loading and unloading for small businesses, and then you layer on top of it access to public charging.
0: It almost makes you wonder that maybe we should use some of our roads as space. That is
1: a really that is a really great point. We have all of this public space, including our roads, and we could reallocate some yes. of it and for some of these activities for sure.
0: And I think it can get complicated. You don't want to break fundamental ways that that the city feels like it works, but you also should question, especially if you're able to shift more people to e-bikes, if you're able to shift more to transit, then can we free up some of the road space for all these other activities?
1: Yeah, exactly. And like the whole e-bike world, there's a whole bunch of layers in terms of how we scale up people's use of those. One is just the price piece. And the state of Washington has enacted some incentives for folks, and they're tiered based on kind of economic Situation, which is great. And so there's just the how do we get those incentives out the door? There's the issue of how do we make sure we have the right bike infrastructure? Where are people going? This is something that we talked a little about when we met a few weeks, a couple of weeks ago. What do we know about people's travel patterns? And there are some data sets that we haven't unlocked yet, right? Like Lime Bikes has a lot of data now around how people get around, or we really need to be. Renegotiating our street allocation to match up where people are using bikes and electric scooters to get around.
0: So it sounds like one thing, I guess maybe we'll do these kind of occasional product call outs because to the extent that we have people from the tech industry listening, are like, oh wait, is that a thing to work on? It sounds like one thing you're looking for is more synthesis and more data to understand how consumers are getting around.
1: Yeah. That would be a great project. I would love for someone to look at Google Maps data or Google data and just to layer on top of Seattle's grid where are people riding their bikes. And
0: that would then inform, okay, this is how we should think about the bike lane projects. And this is how we should think about bike parking and protected bike shelters, and this is how it should connect up to light rail and all these big transportation city planning decisions. Yeah, exactly.
1: And to be clear, we have a bike plan, right? We have a lot of that, but it would be really interesting to layer over this real-time data that has been generated in massive amounts over the last few years. So that's one thing that I think would be really cool. And then layering on top of that, where does the plug-in infrastructure need to be for bikes, especially? And for um, EVs, and for EVs, right? Yeah. So, so those are the kinds of things that we need to think through and develop policies for. Seattle does not have a sidewalk allocation policy related to charging infrastructure. Yeah, yet. we're working on that now. Even so for that we even have for like,
0: households, I believe, like if you want to run an EV charger to plug in curbside, yeah, like there's not really yes, you kind of that's can't right. quite do that clearly yet, right? Right,
1: right. So those are the kinds of things that we have to sort out to be able to scale this transition from fossil yeah. fuels, decarbonization. That's literally the work that we're doing.
0: Yes. Okay. So that's yeah. transportation, yep. which unfortunately I think is the easier one. It's easier, I think, at least for consumers to wrap their heads around, okay, I need to buy a new vehicle that's electric. Or um, or, or, or ride my bike or, or walk. Bike, or take the light rail. Yep. Let's talk about building decarbonization. Yeah. What is that? What are the issues with buildings and the big things we need to do there? Yeah.
1: Let's divide buildings into three big types. How about for the yeah. purposes of this great. conversation? So we have our big commercial buildings, like the big skyscrapers downtown, big multifamily condos and apartment buildings that are privately owned for the most part. And those in Seattle, the mayor just released regulations that we've been working on for the last two last years. Week, right? Just last week. Yep. Congratulations. And it needs to be passed by the city council, so we're not all the way there yet. But it lays out a timeline for building owners to decarbonize to be net zero by 2050. And Typically, these big buildings require pretty significant capital investments if they're not already electrified. Because remember, we have a hydroelectric system for the most part, so it's low emission if you're on electricity. Yeah, me... But if you're natural gas, you do have to make some significant investments. And so-
0: Yeah, just to, just for folks that haven't spent as much time as we do on this stuff, I think it's- we think about a building or even- or a household, which we'll get to- and it's what are the cases where the appliances and the machines inside the building require you to combust something that's usually the thing that we need to change usually that's space heating or water heating or or food heating and so then if we can electrify all those things which fortunately from a product perspective we have great options and increasingly better and better options that gives us the ability to decarbonize the running the operation of the building right And we're very lucky in Seattle, and I think I mentioned this on the episode with Asa, to have Seattle City Light giving us hydroelectric power so the power we're using is not being generated in a coal plant. And so if we can heat our building with a heat pump on the outside or some other electric option, then it is a decarbonized experience. Right. Exactly.
1: So that's exactly it. And so the way we're approaching the biggest commercial buildings in the city is through regulation with Pretty significant lead time so that building owners can do the planning, do the engineering, line up the capital for these big projects. And I will say, just as a footnote, we are, we are very deliberate in calling this decarbonization legislation. So it's a target around yes. greenhouse gas emissions and not a mandate to electrify.
0: I think a great thing from a policy perspective, yeah. not to constrain the solutions. Exactly. Right? Because who knows? Maybe we invent modular nuclear reactors that right. we're ready to put in there in you know 20 years. And you don't want to be like, oh, like the policy says you have to, have to, do to electrify yeah. from the grids. Like, what are we doing? No, the, the point is we don't want to be emitting.
1: Yeah. And then just to bring it back again to this earlier conversation we were having about people in the trades in particular, folks who are pipe fitters and working on natural gas lines, they don't support this legislation. But one of the feedback pieces that we got was at least keep the door open for us to be able to use this pipe infrastructure at some point. Then you have your municipal and publicly owned buildings. And at the end of the day, that's just around identifying the money and doing the project.
0: I guess schools are a little bit-
1: Schools are actually included in our legislation. Yeah, the political and financial steps are discrete and different from commercially owned buildings. Okay, And then we have residential buildings, which we've been talking a lot about. One of the things my office does is we run an oil heat conversion Mm -hmm. program, which is fantastic. We convert about a thousand
0: oil heated homes a year to electricity. And so these are homes where oil is delivered to their house to heat it. I believe by truck, and then they they have a heating system that's it's highly emittive. I think a lot more expensive to run, and so some of the lowest hanging fruit. It is upgrade. exactly,
1: and there's not as many. I think the number is there's about thirteen thousand in the city. Okay. So we'll have to go back and check. Everybody can Google that. Um, but there, but it's a fairly small number. Yeah, and so it's a great opportunity to learn how to better scale the bigger project, mm-hmm. which is conversion of the tens of thousands of homes in the city on natural gas. Yep. And that's what we've been talking a lot yep. about. And there are a lot of really interesting obstacles to sort through. One that I just think a lot about is the model that we use is with individual contractors, the homeowner themselves calls the contractor, makes the appointment, gets a few bids, and the contractor probably has jobs all over the city or maybe even all over the county or region. We need to figure out how to be able to do literally tens of thousands of these a year. That's one part of the challenge to solve like how do we scale up our contracting and labor force and the logistics around that right like do we do it by neighborhood? How do you scale up access to incentives and consumers' knowledge of these incentives and even how to do it. And this, of course, is what you've been thinking about. And then there's this whole world around permitting and the obstacles that the city has put in place for good reasons, for health and well-being, but how are those getting in the way of being able to do this
0: quickly and at scale? So yes. those
1: are the things we're thinking about.
0: And then fi- and financing these projects financing, because every every exactly. homeowner certainly one thing for Amazon to plan their project to do whatever upgrades they need to do. But like they have the real estate team and yeah. the talent to figure it out and the capital to figure it out. Right. But if every homeowner essentially needs to do a remodel of their home of to some extent, maybe it's insulation, maybe it's some new appliances, maybe it's an HVAC system swap. Thinking about the personal plan for that evolution. Thinking about the financing of that plan, thinking about the incentives of that plan, I think is a fascinating problem at scale for us to deploy all the software minds. To be clear, like you can't write code and then fix someone's house with the code you just wrote, but you can write the code to do everything besides the physical work, which then goes to partnership with everyone in the trades and says, let's make those people as efficient as and effective and as valuable as possible because... That's what we need to optimize for. We don't want to waste, I don't want to waste a second of their time driving around if they don't have to drive around, Yep. right? And you think about the efficiencies we can create with that, collaborating with the utility to say, hey, let's upgrade this in this way so that they can roll those up. Because right now, from my understanding, everything is a bespoke remodel project.
1: Exactly. And I know that's exactly the right word, like bespoke. It's like every single decision is individually made and and really needed to be individually sourced and researched. We have
0: 160,000 homes in Seattle, and each of those probably has on the order of three to five decisions. Right. And that's just one city. Exactly. So for the technologists listening, you think about the opportunity for even helping solve one piece of this and just the number of people that need and the number of cities that need to execute on this. It's so interesting to me because – Like we pass the Inflation Reduction Act and other similar acts at the state level, and we have this like pile. I think Rewiring America calls it like your electrification bank account. Yeah, like you have this bank account sitting there, but people can't access it. It's like we need the tools to access it the right way, and that's so many fascinating products to build. Yeah,
1: that's. I love that we have this bank account sitting, and we need to figure out how to how to use it. It's it's so true, and not only use it, but how do we use it efficiently? How do we use it quickly? I mean, that's it. I love that analogy.
0: One piece that I think is under discussed in this transition is the local health impacts. But I think when we talk about the difference between combusting natural gas in your homes and office buildings versus not, do we think about that as an element of this motivation in addition to the kind of global health impact of climate?
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. Whoever branded natural gas. Oh my God. Yeah. Such a great job! Like I don't know who that person is, but asthma that gas, person, maybe. yeah, asthma gas. Should we maybe say, huh? hopefully that person feels really guilty and can help us rebrand yeah. it in a way that that shifts perception of it. Because part of the challenge is definitely a challenge of education. I think people are open to electrifying, but are not always aware of the health impacts inside their homes, the climate impacts of natural gas. Natural gas was always framed as the cleaner solution. And it just isn't. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I do think that people key into individual health impacts. And that's been a strategy on a lot of big social movements and
0: social change. We don't have to live in a way where we're cooking like with I have the fan on and the window open and I'm trying to like turn on the air purifier, which I have from the smoke season two years ago, because I'm making pancakes in the morning and, and my kids, what am I doing here? I don't have to live like this. And it's still how I live. I need to upgrade my own range to induction. It is a kind of insane that we've gone this long.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. And I think just to bring it back to the theme of the podcast, which is parents and kids and climate change. And I know when my kids were born, now many years ago, the thing I thought a lot about chemicals in their cribs and chemicals in their clothes and flame retardants and stuff. And I went to a lot of trouble to buy things that did not have that in it. But it never even occurred to me at that time from a health perspective, I should think about my stove. Now, as it turns out, I happen to have an electric stove and maybe that's why I didn't think about it. But I definitely wasn't asking that question at all. And I wonder if as part of this education that's happening, I wonder if new parents are starting to think about that. Like what is going to be the safest from an air quality standpoint for my family?
0: And I think that there's multiple different layers of health. There's like air quality and water quality, which can become an issue. There's also noise pollution, which is gaining more and more attention. It turns out that most machines that need to combust things are a lot noisier, whether that's the landscaping tools that we might be using in our city, which I know we have policy to, to improve upon cars and especially commercial fleets and ports and then trucking in a lot of neighborhoods with ports. I think it turns out that this transition, there's a global health of the planet, but if you're like, the time scale there doesn't motivate me, mm-hmm. a lot, some people could just look at it through the lens of your local air quality health that's very immediate and visceral, yeah, I think that's right. Parents for me. That's right.
1: Yeah. I one of the things I've been thinking about on the transportation front is we the state just created this free Orca card for all kids under eighteen. Wow. And that's awesome. It is, and yeah. it's great because it's a it gives kids freedom to get around and that's really important. But we don't orient our transportation system around kids. And that's another thing that I think a lot about Mm -hmm. from a safety and health perspective. What would it feel like to have neighborhoods where kids can walk and bike in the middle of the street and not worry about getting hit or transportation transit routes that are focused on getting kids to and from school? There's just a lot of reorientation we can do. And as it turns out, a kid friendly transportation system is also a climate friendly
0: transportation yes. system. It sounds like such a utopian dream to be like all the things work out that you could put your ten year old on the light rail and that's part of their regular routine and they get around and like they have autonomy. And I think that it's actually not that utopian if you like go other places, like, oh no, kids can do this and have done this historically and there's a number of real choices we could make yeah. to be there and not, like, there's real choice we can make that, like, my kids could be there when they're 10, you know?
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. You can make a car-free route to their schools. Uh, just a little story. In the pandemic, I was working full-time, three kids at home, and my two oldest were 9 and 11. There would be days where my kids would be like, hey, can we ride our bikes to Bellevue? And I'm like, yes, I need you guys to absolutely wow. be out of the yeah. house all day long and ride your bike to Bellevue. But one of the reasons I felt comfortable with that is there just wasn't as much traffic. So they could go do that. Or can we please ride our bikes across town to Golden Gardens? Yes, please ride your bikes all day long yeah. so that I can work.
0: And then we have and, the procurement and we have exactly. the 520 path. Pa- and, yeah. Exactly.
1: And so, but there was just, they had interestingly, probably a lot more freedom because I needed them to be out of the house so that I could, do the job I was doing which at the time was chairing the governor's task force on economic recovery. So it wasn't yes. like this, you know, I, just kind of I don't know. It was it was a, it, it was It wasn't pie in the it sky. Was, it was it was a high stakes moment, right? Yeah. For all of those decisions and yeah, and so having to also mind, you know, online school it was like yes. go ahead, explore yes. the entire city on your bike, please.
0: That's amazing.
1: And there was not a lot of traffic, so yeah. it was possible to do that and I could feel like it's going to be safer than it might be.
0: Yeah. And I think it it matters quite those types of things matter quite a bit, like where precisely your starting point is, right? If you're close to a trail or yes, not. And totally. so speaks to also a point of how do we create routes to that kind of from everywhere, right? That should be like mm-hmm. I think the ultimate goal is that any kid growing up in Seattle should have safe paths to all these things, right? That don't that don't require, you know, fossil fuel transportation.
1: And that really is, I think, part of an environmental justice perspective, which is recognizing the way race and economic disparities have played out in our built environment. Like, it's no surprise that there is a dedicated, beautiful bike path called the Burke-Gilman Trail through the heart of Northeast Seattle, which historically is wider and more affluent. And There are still major efforts to create better bike connections in Southeast Seattle, which are historically people of color. And so there really is this notion that there is a lot of catch-up work that we have to do in other communities in our city so that, to your point, every kid has the ability to walk outside and feel safe, or the parents can feel comfortable knowing that their kid is outside and being safe.
0: One thing I'm interested in, and this maybe connects to the themes of the Green New Deal, is with these upgrades... There's moments where I think our investment can actually start with the communities that have been most behind. And is that something you're seeing from like a policy standpoint? So they're not just saying, oh, yeah, we're going to upgrade the affluent neighborhoods that are going to get solar and new heating. Great. But can we actually flip that on its head and say, no, actually, it turns out where we have historically underinvested is the place we should prioritize and upgrade perhaps first from an emissions bang for buck and health for and from a justice perspective. Yeah,
1: I mean, that's exactly the orientation of this. The city of Seattle created something many years ago called the Race and Social Justice Initiative. And part of that was mapping where the greatest racial, economic, health disparities were over our neighborhoods. And so there's really good place based data around where those disparities exist. And we focus our. Work on those communities, or at least piloting and delivering services there so that we can then expand to the city. I'll just throw out a little issue that we're sorting through. So, South Park is a neighborhood that is adjacent to the Port of Seattle, it's next to the Duwamish River. So, it's really feeling the impacts of climate change first. Its environmental justice issues are really at the forefront because it's next to the port and other industrial uses. So, there are a lot of different interconnecting challenges environmental challenges in that neighborhood. And one of the things the neighborhood identified in a a major planning process was that we need to electrify drayage trucks, which are those trucks that transport goods from- port to logistics facilities. So we are doing an experiment with how are we electrifying first the trucks that are owned by either sole proprietors or small business owners that maybe have 20 trucks. A lot of the folks we're talking about are immigrants or refugees, and they are going to have a harder time getting access to a lot of these new electrification incentives because it's just easier to have access if you are a large resourced trucking company. So we are really in the throes of developing and learning about how do we get incentives out to these drivers that may not speak english, may you know only be in the job for a few years, like how do you create an incentive then? So it's there are a lot of different problems to sort out. It's an example of how focusing on environmental justice impacts allows us to learn a lot that we'll then be able to scale yeah. out across the 4,000 drayage trucks that run in the ports of Tacoma and Seattle. So
0: can't help but do like maybe another product call out here then, which is we have 4,000 trucks that need to be electrified. These are expensive pieces of equipment. You have essentially small business owners for some percentage of those that some interesting layer, I think, to be built to help deploy these incentives to them, it sounds like, and help them finance that and help them figure out what to do or help them access it. Right
1: And even, I mean, we are working with the big entities like Daimler and others. And so there's a lot of effort that's being put into sorting this out. But it really is this question, yeah, of like, how do you let people know that there's a bank account that you can go to the ATM and figure out what's that look like? It's
0: such an interesting theme. I guess I think about from a product perspective, which kind of combines the marketing, the experience, Mm -hmm. the on-ramp. The kind of distribution of and access to these funds, because so much of government stops at the policy, stops at hey, this is what we want to have happen, so let's right. set the policy. But the thing needs to happen right. after that, right? right. Like right. the incentive needs to be used to buy the e-bike, to then do the thing, to like then execute the policy. I know you've been involved in actually building the transit system and going deeper there, but I think that so often people are like, okay, the Inflation Reduction Act passed, like let's okay, clap. we're good. It's like yeah. well. I didn't get a heat pump at my house the second that passed. Like, we actually have to do the thing. Yeah,
1: I know. That's so, that's such a great point. My favorite example of a policy product that went big and ubiquitous is the 30 year fixed rate mortgage. Mm. That literally was not a thing. Somebody had to invent that. It was not something that existed pre Great Depression America. Like, it was in the wake of the Great Depression, a massive number of homeowners lost their homes. And some people got together to think about how are we going to create stable access to financing to start to create stable housing for people. And so, like, they created this product that has the backing of the U.S. Treasury, but you have this, these distribution mortgage brokers, you have banks. Like, it's this really thorough and deep product distribution. And it's a great product that people want, right? And of course, as with many things in American history and finance, there were deeply racialized and racial injustices built into who had access to those mortgages. But it's just a really good example of where that really can work.
0: That's a great example. What we really need to crack is how do we decarbonize all these homes? And there's still a lot of stuff that just has not been touched by yeah. kind of the innovation well, of the industry.
1: like one thing I just thought of is what if when you buy a home, you can add on financing
0: to decarbonize so exactly, it? Exactly. What, you is know? Our de- what is our decarbonization mortgage that is a partnership with, Yes. you know? And that
1: has the same consumer protections and terms right. and
0: all of those things. That enables that, the kind of standardization that enables things yes, to go faster.
1: Yes. Yeah. So that's it. Somebody should work on that. A decarbonization mortgage when you purchase your home.
0: We'll pilot it in Seattle. Yeah.
1: Also, uh, carbon score. That was another one that I like. The same idea as walk score. When you're buying a house, you can look at what the carbon score is. That's
0: right. And we have both Redfin and Zillow folks here. And a few of them might be listening.
1: (laughs) That's what we're hoping for.
0: But there's a lot of places where you can start to teach people that, hey, it actually turns out if you have solar on your roof and you have a heat pump and these things like living in your house is a different cost experience than if you didn't. Yeah. And it's kind of crazy that you show the HOA fees, but you don't know what's the utility spend or the internal health of um, the gas burning and all these things. So there's a lot of things as consumers start to care about these things, that we should start marrying that with people's understanding yep and yep. then and investment and that's right and onward. Tell me a little bit around the concept of low pollution neighborhoods.
1: who wants to live in a high pollution neighborhood? Nobody does. Everyone wants to live in a low pollution neighborhood and From a planning and policy perspective, the reason I like this framing is it allows us to bring our buildings work and our transportation work together so that we can start to think about how are we weaving together all of these investments in a comprehensive way. So that we are actually getting to net zero neighborhoods, which is what we need to do. So yeah. how are we putting in electrification infrastructure? What does our utility need to be doing to make sure there's enough load capacity at a neighborhood scale? And then it allows us to really also experiment with, like, how do we get to net zero in this yeah. place-based way?
0: I love that a concept, both as a consumer of the city, but also as a builder. Seattle's is a city of neighborhoods. And I think there's a lot of pride in those neighborhoods. Neighborhoods could get to a point where they start to measure against each other yeah, a little bit. right. And like, like have a healthy competition around this new transition and which one's upgrading and which one's next. And I think people have some civic pride in that way and actually relate to their neighborhood, especially in Seattle, around their urban corridor of retail. And there's some density there to play with. I think that there's really something magical there to tie back into, especially residential decarbonization, to think about, OK, 160,000 homes, that's really abstract to me. But if I walk around my neighborhood, I could start to visually imagine seeing those upgrades and changes. And I know when someone's putting in solar and I can imagine those hundreds of homes around me upgrading.
1: That's right. And it's not just that. It's like we're implementing a low emissions loading zone in the small business district, right? Yeah. Bike lanes are
0: changing. And like, let's. And the rapid line's coming in. You can start to tie these things together in a really cool way.
1: Exactly. And then exactly measure kind of place-based emissions to see how are we doing? Because at the end of the day, we need to get to zero, right? Decarbonize everything quickly. And so we just thought it was a really good way to bundle together our work in all different ways of slicing it, whether it's the incentives that are available or the electrification needs. but putting it all together.
0: Amazing. Well, I would like to live in a low pollution neighborhood. So so would I (laughs) because everyone would, right? Exactly. So thank you for doing everything you're doing. And I hope to keep working with you on this and bringing more folks in tech and otherwise along with you. One more question. Oh, sure. Go for it. Really cute moment with your kids before we started recording where I was trying to get them to introduce you and what you do. What is their conception of what you do? Because you have those older kids and you do this amazing work. And I'm just curious how that stitches together or doesn't.
1: That's a really good question because I had a very public life before going to OSE, and my kids spent a lot of time in political events. And this work is now so much more, actually, just much more in the background for them. So I, you your fifteen-year-old,
0: is not asking you questions about climate change. I mean, yet, she or... does,
1: and I think it actually is important to her that I am doing this for sure. I think that it's it. It is a good thing that I'm putting my time into that. Yeah, definitely. But from just a visceral, like, what does mommy do standpoint, it's a lot less visible to them than it used to be.
0: I think a lot about this tension for myself and for others who work on this, which is you want to do work that maybe matters for your kids, like working on climate. But also, like, your kid's primary experience of you is how are you as a parent and what are your needs and expectations of them and vice versa? And that kind of isn't so much about the substance of your work as much as it is about you know their experience with it or in it. It is a fascinating kind of interplay.
1: Yeah, like again, we used to have fundraisers at my house, and then I think COVID changed the role work plays too. Like it is literally in the background in our house now because I'm home so much more
0: doing a podcast, in doing a podcast room in the living <laughs> room, exactly with the so, dog
1: coming in and all that kind of stuff.
0: Amazing. Well, thank you, Jess. Okay, this was so thank fun.
1: you, Ben. So much fun. Thank
0: you. Well, that's Episode 8 of Climate Papa with Jessen Farrell from Seattle's Office of Sustainability and Environment. But we first met Jessen when Arthur from Episode 1 and I were exploring what we need to do to make a real dent in decarbonizing our cities. We found her energy to be inspiring and her desire to collaborate and convene groups of people to work on these really complex and entangled issues to be really energizing and contagious. To that point when we first met, Arthur and I put together a strategy to attack the problem of decarbonizing the 160,000 single-family homes in Seattle and use that as a model for for other cities. We think it's all about moving from this bespoke remodel that Jess and I just spoke about to building what we call the decarbonization factory. We'll be sharing out more about this strategy in the coming couple weeks. So if you haven't already, please head to climatepapa.com and subscribe to our updates as we'll send some emails with our thoughts and ideas here. We hope by opening up how we think we can do this that we'll spur more builders to come into the space and take on these massive and impactful problems. As always, please subscribe and review this episode wherever you happen to be listening to podcasts right now. And send me a note anytime to ben at climatepapa.com if you want to learn anything more about what I'm up to or have guest suggestions. And with that, Our music is the Balkan Bump remix of Mellow Kind of Hype by Slink and Lazy Surf Orchestra. Let's have them take us out again.
1: On we go like...